My name is Mark Boris, and I've teamed up with Stake, one of Australia's top investing platforms, to talk about going public. IPOs are exciting milestones that unlock new capital, draw more attention, and open up opportunities. But a lot happens before and after the trading bell rings, and it's not all glamour. Join me in candid conversations with prominent business leaders as we reveal all the ups and downs of getting a private company listed. With me today is Scott Kirkland, co-founder and executive director of medical technology company EM Vision or Envision. Envision makes innovative medical devices and develops portable electromagnetic microwave imaging solutions. The company was listed on the ASX in late 2018 under the ticker EMV. And you're about to hear all about how that transition went. So here's Scott Kirkland going public. Scott Kirkland, welcome to Going Public, mate. G'day, Mark. Very, very interested to talk to you about what you do. Your business is commercialising scientific research in Australia, but what's your background? So my background, specifically sales and marketing. So I'm, I'm not the inventor no. or an engineer, but yep. we've got some really talented engineers that work for us. That's pretty important because uh, when it comes to uh, commercialising, you have to be able to market <laughs> these things. Because <laughs> the big issue is your engineers, they're great at building, designing, and then you have your clinicians who implement. Yeah. Yep. But you've got to have someone to distribute. Yeah. So can we go through what you guys are doing now? Sure. So we're developing portable brain scanners to reduce the bo- the burden of stroke. So specifically focusing on stroke initially. Two models. One is a cart-based system, so for the bedside, and the second is a helmet-based system for ambulances. And what we want to do is bring the brain imaging to the patient to speed up diagnosis, speed up treatment, because time is brain and stroke, right? The earlier you can do that, less disability, better the outcome. Stroke is a, quite a prevalent issue in probably everywhere in the world, but like definitely in Australia. Um, we all probably know someone who suffers from stroke, I certainly do. What have been the constraints around treating stroke mm. that, or therefore the problem that you mm. guys are addressing with the solution? Well, 20 years ago, there were no treatments. You know, it was really, really poor state of affairs back then. Now there's really effective treatments and they typically get blood flow going in the brain again, restore the plumbing, so to speak. But that's what stroke is, isn't it? it, it the, the blood stops flowing through it's, the brain. It's a blockage in a blood vessel in 80% of the cases roughly, but 20% could be a ruptured blood vessel, so a yep. bleed. Yep. And so the treatments are different. So that's why you've got to figure out what, what, what's the right type. So really effective treatments, the, the challenge is not everyone is getting access to those uh, as early as, you know, the healthcare community would like because you need that brain imaging as part of the, you know, the piece of the puzzle to help inform the right treatment. So if there's more widely accessible, low cost, portable, easy to use brain imaging, there's a good chance there's a greater percentage of the population that's going to access the treatment. In terms of stroke, the first thing we've got to do is work out if someone's actually had a stroke. Mm. I mean, there are, I don't know, I, I hear it on the radio advertisers sometimes there's like the, some word acronym they come up with. FAST. Face, um, speech, and then time. Time, time is a right. yeah. good thing. I remembered that. Yeah, that was- <laughs> well, we, we we could have edited it out yeah. and, and done it again. But but time times a uh, is the critical one. That's right. Yeah, spot on. You got millions of brain cells dying every minute. I remember the exact statistic, but it's like I don't know. Every half hour, hour, the brain may be aging about ten years or so. Some in the event of a stroke. Right. Right. That kind wow. of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. There's a very 
small window to get effective treatment. The same place to things like concussion. Um, mm. The quicker you can stop someone or diagnose a concussion, you know, in a sand footy game where mm. some kid falls over, uh, the quicker you can diagnose that and start treatment on it, the quicker the person can get better. In terms of what M Vision's solution is to the problem, can you go back a little bit and tell me about the history of mm. how this all started? Yep. Like, uh, like who was the dude who was sitting around thinking, <laughs> well, this is a problem, we've got to come up with a solution? <laughs> Um, so we go all the way back to, I think it was like late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, really? there was Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll keep it short. But there was no, a no, research no. team. I'm dying on that. There's a research team at um, University of Queensland that were developing uh, near-field radar to look at slope stability and mine shafts, trying to spot a crack earlier. And they right. developed this neat little system that they spun out into a company called Ground Probe which was acquired by Orica, bigger bigger player there. And so they had all these talented engineers that were looking for something to do. And um, Professor Stuart Crozier came in who had a background in MRI innovation. So he developed IP that is now in most two-thirds of all MRIs. And he thought this is a good opportunity to restructure the team and let's see if we can use this underlying technique of imaging to look inside the body, right? And so that was, you know, around 2008. Eight that they began in earnest looking at imaging the skin, uh, the torso, you know, the liver and the brain. And I got, Are we talking about using an MRI machine? No, it's called electromagnetic um, imaging on the microwave frequency or spectrum. And it's similar to the full body scanners at the airport. You know, right. when you put yep. your arms up and they send signals into your clothes. Right. Same kind of thing, but at a lower frequency going into the body. So I had a connection to the the professors kind of 2015, 2016, and they were looking for funding to help progress those devices. Right. And I, I had an interest in the skin scanner specifically. My father had melanoma and I, you know, thought that might be something that could have a positive impact. You know, it's a big issue in Australia, right? Yep. Speaking with a bunch of dermatologists, there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for changing what they they do. You mean at the clinical level? Correct, yep. correct. But you know, so I started looking a bit deeper into the brain scanner opportunity and spoke with a bunch of neurologists, intensivists, nurses, and everyone said, we need this. There's a real need. You know, stroke's a big issue. It's like one in four adults will have one. We need portable brain imaging. So there was a genuine pull from the clinical community to take that forward. You're saying the guy who invented this for the mine originally it was able to be moved around, but it might have been looking at cracks in um, in the mine shaft or something like that. Well, yeah, that, it was a similar underlying principle, so near-field radar. What does so that mean, near-field? Near, near-field radar. It's, I mean, it's rather than trying to find planes in the sky, it's yep. trying to look at objects. You know, they use non-destructive testing, use it in the pyramids, trying to find hidden chambers, right, those right, kinds right. of yeah, things. Yeah, but yeah. let's use it to look inside the body. Yeah. That's kind of a layman's explanation. Yeah. That's why I'm in sales and marketing, not <laughs> the event. <laughs> it was that technique that adapted for the human applications, but portable, the key principles were portable. So, you know, a series of antennas, not requiring the energy that a CT does or the the magnets that an MRI does. So we can send signals that are similar to what your mobile phone uses. Wow. Right. So there are trade-offs, of course. We're not going to get the same image with a $3 million MRI. Yep. But the idea is we could get this portable system that can deliver a good image so we can make quicker decisions when when a, a time-sensitive medical emergency is occurring. But in terms of stroke, yep. and given what we said right at the beginning about that time factor, in terms of um, treating a stroke, the stroke is not like a skin cancer that grows fairly slowly. You know, mm. If you mm-hmm. get regularly checked, you can, you can get on top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, a stroke just happens. Yep. Uh, you know, yep. A lot of times there's not yep. even any indicators. It just yep. happens. Yep. And it happens. At the, it can happen to anyone. And it can Teenagers, happen anywhere, yep. anytime, yep. at the worst time. Yep. 
because I've got friends who have had strokes mm. and they all happen at uh, weird times in weird places mm. and uh, everybody panics. So you then thought that this is an opportunity or a problem that needed to be solved. Mm. Mm. What happened then? Well, the first step was to secure the rights to take it forward. So that the, the research team, so it was Professor Stuart Crozier, Professor Minna Bush, and they had about 20-odd talented research fellows, PhD students. They were all very keen to take this concept out of the lab and develop a prototype that could go on patients suitable and, you know, for a proof of concept. So they needed funding. Usually that's at an academic level, like a, a sort of, uh, you know, NHMRC or government. Correct, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we pursued national which, health research. Yeah, yeah. That, that they're fantastic. They yeah. make a huge difference. Hard to get though. They are very competitive. They're pretty good at getting them at the unis. But for us, you know, I think we've secured maybe twenty million in grants. Wow, yeah. that's a lot though. Yeah. Yeah. And and reason being, stroke huge health economic burden. So it's yeah. about six billion or so in Australia each year. That's the kind of societal health economic cost. Uh, we can create, you know, keep manufacturing local, create more engineering, STEM jobs. Are you saying that you secured from the government though, 20 Federal million? Federal and state, oh, yeah. Wow. And just explain though, what happens when they give you the 20 million? So do they take a share of the business? What happens? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. So the different schemes. So we've had a, um, the first one we got was a comp called a Commonwealth CRCP. Uh, and that was, I think it was 2.6 from the government, 900 from partners, GE and uh, the University of Queensland. And that was really milestone based. So you need to deliver on certain milestones, show you're progressing through the project um, to receive the grant funds. And But what do they get? Well, they get, like I said, they're helping fuel innovation in Australia right. and, and job creation. But they don't and get all any equity or No, no. Or, or no. any share of the IP? No, no. The unit. The unit for us to um, acquire the rights to the IP, we gave the university a shareholding in the company and a, um, a modest royalty rate as well on the original IP. Right. So you and your co And my co founder, yeah. Ryan Laws, yeah. Okay. So yeah. you guys discovered this professor who's got this um, bit of tech. Um, you've worked out as a need. Um, you go back to the university where this professor comes from and then you cut a deal on the IP. Correct. Yeah. Yep. With, with their, they've got a special um, division called UniQuest, which, you know, they do these deals all the time, yeah, technology yeah. transfer deals. It's not unusual for the University of Queensland to uh, do this sort of stuff. They've got a great track record. They've they got like 100 successful startups. Yeah. Right for things like solar and everything. Like they're, they're, yep. they've been like leaders so, yeah, in uh, a lot of areas. Yeah. Cervical cancer vaccine came out yep. of there as well. Right. Because most great technology starts off in the academic environment. Mm. But it does need commercial inputs. Correct. Because they don't know how to take a commercial. Some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, m yeah. Most don't, my yeah, experience, sure. most don't. I've sure. been involved in one or two of them. Okay. Um, yeah, out of University of Adelaide. And uh, yeah. my experience is um, they're great at the technology, but they're not great at raising money, <laughs> you know, and, and, and spending the money and convincing people actually to take risk. They're not great at spending the money? They're good. Uh, no, I mean, what I mean by that is they do spend it. <laughs> I, I mean, oh right, okay. They're too good at spending yeah, money. They're too good at spending money. Is probably the way I should put it. Like in research, especially when you have engineers and what have you, um, they can tend to um, have a list of twenty things they want to do instead of saying well, here's five things or three things. Let's just do those three, the three mm. things and let's move, not move outside those three things. Prioritization yep. is a big deal because yeah. everything's interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a really big danger. You got to do one thing, do it well. You know, we could be looking at stroke, but Alzheimer's and 50 other things. We're, we're trying to just do stroke yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and making sure the team's focused on that. Yeah. Going back to the commercialization expertise, Stuart Crozier again, because he'd done a deal with GE and Siemens and licensed out IP, he, you know, that commercial now gave us a lot of confidence as well that we've partnering with the right people to take this forward. We still needed to bring in medical device industry experts into the business with that commercialization expertise, but we knew the underlying, you know, the co-inventor had a pretty good pretty good now. So the, yeah. the guy who invented it originally, yeah. was he an engineer? Yeah, they're all engineers. Yes. Yeah, it was a big group. Uh, the yeah. biomedical engineers. Yeah. yeah. So so some some are experts at antenna design, yeah. transceivers, algorithms, you know, it's yeah, because there's a lot of software goes into it. A huge amount, yeah. Um, and a lot of, but there's also a lot of um, industrial design, yep. mechanical design, yep. Yep. mechanical engineered, um, electrical engineered. Yeah, there's a whole host of engineers yep. who have to go into design. It's gonna be easy to use. Yeah, it's got to look good. It's got. To- <laughs> it can't look too scary, you know. What I mean, uh, uh, yeah, uh, or cumbersome, or yeah. uh, it's got to have a certain industrial look uh, sure. about it. Yeah. So you and your co-founder, you're yeah. sitting there looking at this great technology. Yeah. You've got a problem to solve. You've got the technology to solve it. Where to from then? So, you know, you, let's say you reach your milestones, you've built a prototype. I presume we're getting to a prototype. Yeah, we're getting getting we're getting to a very agricultural prototype, right. but, but one could go on healthy volunteers. And I remember getting scanned back in the lab uh, in, back in 2016, I think it was, 17. Um, and so the main thing was, okay, we've got to find talented engineers, product development people with industry expertise. That was the big, the big kind of, we got the research team. We had a great industrial design team through Tiller Design. We needed to find the, you know, the regulatory experts going through FDA, TG, making sure you're designing, developing something that's going to meet all those requirements globally. It's a huge, huge task. Um, And again, there's a big difference between a research product, research prototype that may be perfect in a lab you need something that can f- work under all scenarios, all environments in the wild as well, right? And so sometimes you have to compromise on certain things to, to get it out there. Um, you know, the, the concept is get a minimally valuable or minimally viable product into market in a f- quick amount of time and then build on it rather than spending years and years and years doing R&D, trying to do perfection. And, yeah. you know, you see a lot of things just never get out there because like, oh, this maybe we can tweak this a little bit and, and then, yeah. So that, that's an important point. Yeah. I mean, if, if we just sort of sit on this for a second, mm. I don't want to park it because often people who are coming up with a – and academics can tend to do this. If they're coming up with a solution to a problem, they can tend to try to perfect it and – the process of perfecting it usually runs out of capital pretty quickly and capital markets don't stay available all the time. Mm. You've got to nail it while it's there. Mm-hmm. So that means you pretty much got to have a minimum viable product mm. as soon as you can. Get it out there, start making some money, and then you can build build. We'll show it. people yeah. pay for it. Yeah, yeah. Getting it tested, yeah. how did you find patience? As part of that grant that we won, we brought we were fortunate to bring in um, some clinicians from Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane that were really enthusiastic, really supportive, uh, could see it had potential to improve the stroke care pathway. And so very early on, they're making sure we're building something useful. And then you go through an ethics protocol process, you know, you design a study protocol. And because the device is non-invasive, you know, you're not impacting anyone's um, standard of care treatment or slowing down any processes there, we could run a study fairly easily to get that um, 
that proof of concept. So that was a 50 patient study. We're now running a much larger study at the moment. The prototype, mm. how close is it to does look to the end product? Yeah, I was just trying to think of an analogy. It's kind of like a, a hand-built kind of classic car, you know, they've done, put out 50 of them, you know, it does the job. You're not going to, you're not going to, um, build a thousand like that. Uh, it's pretty similar. I mean, it has a headset, it's got, um, brains that make sense of this, you know, something called a VNA that measure all the signals we send. Uh, I think the big difference, our, com- you know, commercial product is a lot smaller and it's designed to meet, you know, international medical device standards, meet our margin objectives as well. All these cost. Exactly. Yeah. So, but if you put them side by side, they're not worlds apart. You know, these are portable brain scanners. You know? So at what point then do you just say, okay, we're going to go, we're going to list this company. We're going to go IPO. We're going to raise more money through the public well, environment. Well, we actually listed quite early on in our journey. So it was even before we had that first proof of concept prototype for patients. We had a lab-based concept um, prototype. And I think that was a byproduct of where, you know, you talked about the availability of capital kind of 2018, there was, there was appetite for R and D stage, innovation stage. If you had a story where there was some pretty clear milestones, you could communicate along the way. To your investors. Correct. How much money did you raise? Six, the- six million. So okay. it was, yeah. At a very modest valuation as well. We I was, was going to yeah. say that six million in itself was quite modest. In terms of um, the amount of money you want to raise, you have to have, be clear in your head what the value of the asset is today or the assets are today. And in, in your case, it's IP. IP and the team. And, and how do you do that? It's very, it's very, very hard. And 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 even fast forward um, today, we've got a, a, some research coverage from a few different brokers and, you know, there's quite a lot of variance between their valuation expectations as well. So it's pretty, it's pretty hard. I think the main principle was making sure that there's enough upside for those coming in and not, not getting greedy. You know, you see uh, listings, my opinion, listings at a price for perfection, you make it very tough for yourselves. Yeah, yeah. You know? So when you when you uh, list and you raise six million, yep. one of the main reasons you've got to have evaluations is so that you know how much you're going to give away. Yeah. Because, you know, yep. like the six million that you raise might yep. represent 10% of uh, yep. uh, yep. pre-money 60 million. It was a bit under 20 mil at that time, yeah. Uh, evaluation? Yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah, you're, you're, yeah. so you're giving away like a, a just under a third. Yeah. And the investors have got to be clear, well, hang on, that 20 million, I'm getting a third. I'm getting my share of a third yep. If yep. to the extent that they um, – participating. Uh, did you do a second round? Yeah. So, uh, byproduct of those grants, we haven't had to raise a lot of money, which right. has been great. But um, So, you can you can get grants in the listed entity. The listed entity can. can also go yeah. and get grants. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. good. Yeah. Um, so, we did four and a half million in, in 2019. And, and an additional four and a half million? Four and a half million. And yeah. then we did a nine million in 2020. And have they all been up rounds? Yeah. 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 So, we listed at 25 cents. The, the four and a half was at 74 cents. And then the nine was at a dollar forty. Oh wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And and in terms of um, knowing at what point to go to the market. Yeah. How do you gauge that? You know, in the market, um, yeah. I, th- I think you really want to time it around meeting that pivotal next stage of development. You know, we're starting a big trial or whatever it was. You know, so I think it's a big mile a milestone coming up. When we did twenty eighteen, we just built that device that we're going to take into the trial. And then in 2020, we just imaged patients, our first few patients, that kind of thing. So those right. kind of milestones, it's a, you've de-risked it, you're bringing in a new audience of investors. And do you use the same book run, book runners? I mean, do, or do you change your brokers? Have you changed brokers? Do you change brokers throughout the process? We've had uh, some brokers that have been following since the early days 
bid into the books along yep. along the way. Um, we used um, Bell Potter in, in yep. June 2020. They did, did, did a good job. Um, I think there's the same principle as well with those um, placements. You make sure that, you know, again, you're not going for asking for so much that it's it, you, you're going to be nervous around whether we get this or not. You said yep. the amount you need to get your miles, don't get talked into doing too much. Yeah. And then make sure, you know, there's, there's genuine demand well beyond what what you're asking for, and then you can go through a process and figure out who are the who are the investors we we believe are going to be there for the longer term, and but, go through the filter. Let's say you could raise hundred million for argument's sake. Is it better to take the money all as much as you think you're going to need over the next five years now, or is it better to just take a little bit now, reach another milestone, go get a bit more at a at a higher price? There's quite a few different views on this. Mm. Um, if we use that nine million example, we had maybe bids for three or four times that rough, you know. So so there was opportunity to take more. Right. You, you could have increased it. it yeah. yeah. We didn't need it. We didn't want to dilute, overly dilute everyone. And I think that's worked out well because we haven't had to raise money for three, three and a half years and, and, and still don't. So, um, yeah, I think in hindsight that has worked out. How do you think or your actions within the business as CEO change once you get into the public listed sphere? Uh, so, well, I think it's important when I, when we first listed, I was an executive director, mostly focused on corporate development. So co-founder, executive director, and my colleague, Rob Weinberger, who was the former CEO of Nanasonics, which is a successful, you know, medical device, um, company, he was CEO. And so recently we did a transition, he's stayed on the board and, and as a consultant, um, I think corporate development, you know, most of my time was focused on building partnerships, so clinical relationships, um, other grand opportunities, product partners, potential future commercial partners, all these kinds of things. Uh, and rather than, you know, in the pre-listing space where you might be meeting investors every six months to give them an update, you know, when you're listed and you're in small cap land, you, you firstly, you need to plan out what is the roadmap of, of meaningful developments we can c- communicate over the next 12 months, right? And, so and, that, that's an important word, communicate. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Got to keep people engaged. And I think if you're thinking about listing and you're, you're, you you look at the 12 months and you think, wow, geez, there's not a lot to talk about. Maybe you want to, you know, if you're in that pre-revenue space, you may want to reconsider because it could be very tough if there aren't, you know, meaningful milestones to communicate. And you see that. What about when there's bad news? One of my colleagues, um, Ron, he, his favorite his favorite saying is, would you rather be um, Chris Charisma or Chris Credibility? Right. right. And yeah. and. His view, and I share this view, is if you if you're upfront and transparent with people, they'll accept it. So, for example, when we were running our first study, that was coincided when when COVID became a thing. And trying to run a study when you've got a pandemic that can be challenging. And there were times where we had to pause the study. Yeah, and and we didn't know how long that may be paused for. So yep. that, but you know, again, you just you have to communicate quickly. Obviously, your continuous disclosure obligations. I think if you're transparent, if you've built up a a, a period of credibility with your shareholders. I think they're pretty accepting. They understand these things. The risk and return profile is going to be a roller coaster. You know, it doesn't it doesn't always um, happen to perfection. But I think we've been lucky in that we've been able to hit our major milestones over the five odd, odd years or so that we've been listed. You were able to raise money in an IPO. I mean, would you have been able to raise it like just go and do high net wealth or something like that? I would think so because the story is one that resonates with a lot of people. You know, you mentioned you know, someone that has a stroke. A lot of people have that personal connection. A lot of people understand, have had brain imaging and appreciate, oh, could, you know, portable. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, we didn't go down the VC route, but again, it was um, we had a pub, we set up a public unlisted company from the outset. 
So we had a board, we had the governance structures in place. So transitioning from private to public wasn't a massive leap structurally for the company. But yeah, again, the, the, the window was certainly open. You know, if, if we were trying to list our stage of business then, now, it would be very challenging. Why do you say that? There was appetite for companies to developing innovative products, going after big markets uh, that, you know, might not be generating revenue, but had, you know, good quality teams attached. There was appetite to support that. I think at the moment, you know, you're not seeing a lot of listings in that space. You, you've got to be profitable or pretty close to, Yeah. Yeah, so so people's view, investors' view of what they're prepared to invest in, I think, has changed post COVID. Well, and I and I don't think it's got anything to do with COVID. I don't want to say that because it's got nothing to do with COVID. But I think it's got a lot to do with liquidity in the marketplace. Mm. So, what can what return can I get on some money that I've got to invest? I'm an investor, say. Oh, well, I can go and put it in the bank and I could probably buy some bank hybrids and I'll get 6%. Mm. Buy CBA hybrids, I can get 6%. Not mm. bad. It's a bank. It's basically no risk associated with it, um, particularly CBA. They just made $10 billion profit, so it's pretty good. Yeah, and I don't have to think about it. I'll get my money every month, every quarter, whatever it is, however they pay. If you go back two or three years when you were raising money, the return you got was like 0.5 of a percent. Mm, mm. So there's a lot of liquidity looking mm, for a home. Sure, yeah. And so I guess part of your role is to assess liquidity in the market and what sort of asset classes are trying to attach itself to and do we have the asset class in your case? You know, like are they interested in um, medical uh, devices? Mm. If the whole world all of a sudden says, we don't care about medical devices. It does make sense trying to list your company on the stock exchange because you're not going to get the investors. Mm. Um, but if the whole world's saying we're really interested in medical devices mm. and we can't put our money anywhere else because we're getting a crappy return if we just put it in the bank, do you think that's part of the reason why you were successful in raising money in the various stages you raised it in in your business? So it's a good it's a good question. You know, I mean, it's part of this. Was it a timing? Yeah. Is it a timing thing? Um, uh, That's a question. How yeah, important is timing? I, yeah, and, and I think there's a there's a class of investors, particularly family office, and and call, call them super high net worth, whatever you want to call them. We got uh, a few on the register which have been very supportive. That probably uh, they want to make money, but they also want to um, support something that could have a positive impact. Yep. and they're always around. Yeah, you know, so. Yep. Um, they might have still been there. They're very sensitive to returns. Mm. When am I going to get some money? When mm. am I going to get a dividend? Sure, sure. You've got to time those ones. Yeah. And who did you lean on or refer to to get that timing part right? Uh, there's quite a few different things. The broker, Ryan, my colleague, had, you know, particularly the, the investors that supported us in the private rounds, they, they followed on, right? Yep. They wanted to support again. Um my colleague Ron, uh, he, as I mentioned, Nanasonics, he had there were plenty of people that backed him early on there, right. and that's a great. I mean, it's like a fourteen-year overnight success story. But yep. that's you know they went from fifty mil, they're maybe a hundred one point five billion market cap now. So there's there's, there's plenty that um, did well out of that journey. We're happy to back him again as well. So I think, and likewise, some of our directors, you know, brought brought various people to the party. So I think there were quite a few different contributions bringing that investor pool in. And and also a part of part of it is figuring out it's not for everyone. So figuring out within that universe of small cap fund managers or family offices who likes the space, who's yeah, done yeah. well in the space. That's where yeah. a good broker knows yeah. in his client yeah. list yeah. who likes this stuff. Correct. Correct. 
where are you up to now? So like yeah. in terms of your milestones? Yeah, yeah. So we're running a much larger study at the moment and rolling 150 suspected strokes. So we've got three of those first generation devices that I was talking about before, one at Liverpool, one at Royal Melbourne and one at Princess Alexandra. And there's a couple of phases to the studies. Then we want to go to the FDA, TGA, we expect to be on market around FY25. Ultimately, it's about manufacturing. Yeah. Lots of them because sure. you're getting orders from all around the world, yep. let's say. Big part of it is consumables. you got the device, yep. but then there's a there's a cap and there's this, a coupling media, which is single yep. use per patient uh, to create a reoccurring. So it's one of those caps all the wires coming out of no, it? No, 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 it's just infection prevention. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, we're targeting around $25 per scan for that. So you've right. got the device itself targeting around 150K US. Yep. 25 scan and then preventative maintenance and service contracts, about 10, 10% of the capital equipment per annum. Wow. Right. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, it's a large market. It's, it's about where we, where are we going to start? What are the areas that require it the most? You know, is it in the regions at smaller hospitals that might not have CT? Is it in tertiary large hospitals that have a packed ICU and need to monitor patients? You know, there's a few different opportunities there. And think, think about it, the hospital as well. There's a huge demand to get in there and they've got to figure out who do we prioritize? Yeah. I mean, often it is stroke patients because of that time, time issue, but also trying to take someone down from ICU. You know, if they're on life support equipment, they're on a ventilator and you've got pack them up, take them down, that's a big trip. So it'd be better to take the stuff to them. Correct. And that's, sort that's of your, part of the proposition. That's really your thesis. Part um, of it, yeah. We will bring it to you. Correct. And that's pretty cool. Um, the tech is not as innovative as, as the um, distribution of the tech. In other words, where I can use the tech. Right. That, that yeah. seems to me to be one of the most innovative parts of it because you can put, as you say, you can put it in an ambulance or you can, you can take well, it to the patient. service. Flying yeah. doctors yeah. put it on the plane, yeah. Yeah. Um, especially to regional areas. Yeah. I mean, regional areas would not be able to afford or justify a proper machine. Well, there's, there's the stat. I'll give you a quick stat. So it's if you have a stroke in a metro area in Australia, 77% of people end up in a stroke unit. In regional, it's 3%. Wow. Right. That's so, yeah, big disparity. A lot of people ending up with lots of disability in the regions. Yeah, because and yep. again back onto that uh, time thing, yeah, time part of the yep. the formula. If, if you're two hours away from the nearest hospital, you know you're in you, trouble. Yeah, and that hospital might not have all the gear to image you, and then they've got to send you somewhere else. And yeah, yeah, that's mad. So yep. uh, this and that's just Australia, by the way. So yep. we're talking. I, I guess yeah. I guess you're talking globally. Yeah, China. There's about 400 million people in regional areas. Wow. You know, yeah. So there's big, there's some, and, some huge markets. Yeah. Yeah, and Australian technology, generally speaking, particularly in this area, generally speaking, is highly respected too. Yeah. Well, um, and I, I want to thank you for coming in here yeah. today to talk to me about going public. Yeah. So, well yeah. done. Thanks, Mark. It's been fantastic. Appreciate to talk to you, it. Thank you. Going public is a collaboration between Mark Boris and Steak. Find out more on hellostake.com. Any information shared is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. <laughs>